0: Father, we thank you for your, for, for your word. Uh, it is an anchor. It is a bellwether for our lives. Um, it, it directs us. It guides us. It roots us. And so we pray that you would help root us in the truth of your word. And we ask um, for your spirit's help because flesh and blood cannot understand these things, but your spirit communicates them to our hearts. And so we pray that you would this morning. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, during the 1990s, Dr. Jeffrey Weigand went on 60 Minutes to deliver a major blow to the tobacco industry. He was, he had served as director of research for the third largest um, tobacco company in America. And he had been expressing concerns about the way that the company was tinkering, chemically tinkering, and adjusting with their products to make them more addictive to make them more dangerous for the, for the user. And he started posing challenges. They fired him. And then he decided to blow the whistle on the company. And he ended up poking a bear. Because the company responded in uh, actually pretty significant ways. He would find men, intimidating big men, who would just watch him, follow him, park next to him and look at him. He got phone calls. Uh, he had elementary-aged daughters, and and he received two phone calls that said, "Stop messing with tobacco. Your daughters are beautiful. They're 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 pretty. We want to keep them that way." Threats to his daughters' lives, and then he he went on sixty minutes to do this major interview. They they made this into a, into a movie, an excellent movie called The Insider, starring Russell Crowe, Al Pacino. But it's the story of of one man's attempt to blow the whistle on some things that were happening in this major company. Now, here's the thing. Weigand's story, Jeffrey Weigand's story, is our story. Jeffrey Wygan shook up the tobacco industry. And Christ came into the world. And one way to think about his ministry is he blew the whistle on the world. He shook up the world in its ways. And the world hated him for it. See, the world is not neutral towards Christ or towards its creator, but it's actually bent on destruction. The world is in an outright rebellion against its creator. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we who have been reconciled to God were enemies of God. We weren't just like neutral. We were enemies against God, opposed to God. And God by, by his spirit grabbed us and reconciled us to himself. John in his gospel puts it like this. John chapter one, verse nine. He says, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The creator stands in the midst of its creation, of his creation. And yet the world did not know him. And it's not just that we didn't know Christ. We actively sought to eliminate him. Leslie Newbigin, I think, puts it powerfully when he says, The world is not as free as it thinks it is. We're not honest inquirers seeking the truth. We are alienated and enemies of the truth. We are are by nature idolaters, constructing images of truth shaped by our own desires. And this was demonstrated once and for all when truth became incarnate, present to us in the actual being and life of the man Jesus, truth standing before us. And when our response to this truth incarnate was to seek to destroy it. So this is Advent, right? We're preparing ourselves for the the arrival of God incarnate, Jesus, the Word made flesh. And it's important that we remember that Jesus didn't come into a neutral world. You know, back when I was a kid, Christmas time, December, the lead up to Christmas, you, you, I mean, the shopping mall was like a hub. It was, it was where everybody went to get their Christmas stuff. And, and, and back, and, and maybe people still go to the mall, a lot of people buy online, but back then, a funny thing existed in the shopping mall. It was a little pet store. And there were puppies that they'd put in the front glass of the pet store, and there would always be a crowd that would gather around to look at the cute little puppies to be rescued, right? And it's very tempting for us to think of, of, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God saw us, we were like little puppies caged up, just helpless, and we needed to be rescued. We needed to be adopted. And he came in and he swept us up in all of our adorableness. But That's actually not the way the scripture decides, describes it. Jesus Christ came into a pack of wolves, his enemies. Remember what happened at his birth? There was the aroma of death surrounding it. There was a genocide of male babies. And so his family fled to Egypt. That is a a little picture of Christ's relationship with creation and what exactly he was coming into enemy territory. And we've seen it in John's gospel. For the last few chapters, the authorities have been seeking to destroy the light. They have been seeking to uh, destroy life itself, Jesus. And ostensibly, they'll succeed. It appears that way. It appears that they win in just a matter of hours from, from this point in the, the gospel of John. But before they arrest him, Jesus is still talking to his disciples, giving giving them his last lecture to them. And he gives them a sober warning in this passage today. And I've got two points this morning for us to consider. The first is brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. And the second is take heart. So um, brace yourselves and take heart. Now, again, This is what's described, John chapter 13 through chapter 17. You'll see we're in John chapter 15, so we're kind of right in the middle. This is called the farewell discourse. This is Jesus talking to his disciples after the supper, washing their feet, teaching them all of these important things. He's he's, he's given them commands. He said, my commands to you are that you be washed by me. My commands to you are that you believe in me, he said. And those commands, by the way, they're non-works. They're not works. They're things that are done to you. You, you, you receive the washing. When you believe, you're not, really, you're not doing anything, but you're trusting another to do the thing, the work. So believe in me. And then by receiving this word, word of Christ, Jesus says, ask for anything in my Father's name. When you pray, ask for anything in my Father's name, and he will grant it to you. Jesus has said, love one another. As I have loved you. Jesus has, has spoken of the helper. The Holy Spirit. Who will come and remind you of these things I am telling you. And he's given us this beautiful language. That he's going to prepare a home for us. On his father's estate. That he will take us to. And present to us for, for, for our eternal home. Our forever home. He said that I will dwell in you. And then. At the end of Chapter 14. He says, rise, let us go from here. And they, they move. Where do they go? They leave the upper room, and, they, and I believe they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Jesus picks up this picture of, of plant life. He says, I am the vine. Abide in me. One of my favorite sections of all of John's gospel, Jesus spoke of being the vine. He said, abide in me, and you will bear fruit. Not because of what you do, but by your abiding in me, I will generate fruit in your lives. And that's where we left off. And now verse 18, Jesus says, brace yourselves, brace yourselves. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You've probably been maybe in a a big city or even Oklahoma City where you've been on a tram or a, a subway, whatever, every city calls it something different, um, or or a tram at the airport, and uh, the thing gets moving, and you, whoa, you get off balance, because you're not braced for the movement, you're not holding on to a strap, or a bar, or sitting down, right, Jesus is saying, brace yourselves, get ready, because the world may hate you, and you know, he says, if the world hates, but it's probably even better to say, when the world hates, hate you. Remember that it hated me first. Now, the word there for world is a little bit, he, The word is used slightly differently than what we see in other places. Like, for example, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The world can refer to the creation of God, his creation. The world can refer to the nations, all the tribes and the peoples of the world. I believe that's John 3.16. But there's also this sense of world that refers to the world in all of its fallenness. The world as, as, the world is, in that sense, what human beings, what fallen humanity in their sin create, how human beings organize life, the systems that we create, the structures that we create, the laws that we create, all have a way of being distorted and off. The M.O. of the world, we might say. And that's what he's referring to here. Now, look at verse 19. Let's keep reading. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, the little baby in a manger that we're about to celebrate come Christmas came into enemy territory. The the scripture describes the enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world is what the flesh of humanity builds when it organizes itself in cities and life and culture and all of those things. That's the world and the flesh and, and of course, spiritual forces, the devil and Satan and demonic activity. All of it is in an all-out rebellion against God. And what happens when we were converted to Christ... Is we were transferred from the domain of darkness, from the world and all of its fallenness. We were transferred from that kingdom of darkness and entered into his marvelous light. We were transferred to the kingdom of Christ, from the city of man to the city of God. And that move, that transition from being in darkness to now being in the light, is consequential. There is no such thing as a spiritual Switzerland. There's no neutral ground. You're either enemies of God and happily happy residents of the kingdom of darkness, or you have been brought in by the power of the spirit into the kingdom of light, friends of God, children of God, but now at odds with the world. You see, it's one of the that's how the scriptures describe. It's one or the other. And by aligning ourselves with the kingdom of Christ, Jesus is telling his disciples, you can be confident that the world will hate you. And this, we may be feeling this a bit more, uh, increasingly so, in, in our American context. When I was back in the 90s, the, the big talk was moral relativism. That was like the threat uh, for, for Christians to kind of reckon with. And there was a book that came out called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair by Uh, Greg Kokel and Francis Beckwith. It was a good book. But looking back on... It came out in like the the 90s. Looking back on that book and that topic, it seems like that was like worlds away. Because the problem isn't moral relativism. It's a rigid moral absolutism. Just this past week, Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, um, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and she was basically calling for... It was a very diplomatic call to, for, for folks to uh, recognize um, people of faith, whether Christian, Muslim, Jewish, uh, their understanding of marriage in light of new marriage laws in, in the land, and to recognize that and to respect folks' ability to kind of maintain their long-held beliefs on marriage. It was a very diplomatic, if anything, it was kind of a soft, it was a very soft diplomatic Answer to the question and reading the comments, there was a lot of hatred coming. And you, you can see the comments based on the recommend who recommends the comment. Those move up to the top. So the most kind of popular comments were saying things like, this is flat bigotry. Why? Why would the New York Times publish something so crazy as this? As to encourage diplomacy and sort of getting along with one another. See, there, there, there's a rigid moral absolutism that doesn't like long-held uh, Christian beliefs. And small surprise, because look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So thinking back to the insider, right? Jeffrey Wigand, the tobacco worker. The world loves a company man. You, you, you get with the world's program, and they will love you. But, but what Jesus is saying is, I've plucked you up out of the world. And so you can expect the world to hate you. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word... They will also keep yours. A servant, Jesus says, is not greater than his master. They hated me. You, you Jesus is saying, disciples, you saw them pick up stones to throw. You saw the anger in their faces, the vitriol. The, you, you can expect the same because I, the I, I'm not a. You're not above me. You servants of mine are not above me, so you can expect the same. And again, he says, you have my authority, verse 20, to go and lead and build my church so that those who listen to me will listen to you because you're going out in my power and in my authority and with the power of the Spirit. Now, keep keep reading, verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, that that reads a a little bit strange. You may think, well, wait a sec. If Jesus hadn't come, there wouldn't be any guilt? That's kind of how it reads, right? I believe what Jesus is saying is that because of his arrival in the world and those who gave him the stiff arm at best or a (laughs) a stone's throw at worst— they have a higher culpability now, post-Christ's arrival, because he came to speak to them. But keep reading, verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. He says they've, they've seen the works that I've done, this is amazing what he's saying here. They've seen, think about the works that Jesus has done. He's healed the lame, he's calmed storms, he's cast out demons, he's feeding the hungry, he's giving sight to the blind, he's raising the dead back to life. These are his works. And and, and, and what did the world do by and large? They hate him for it. And they hate the Father who sent him. You see how, how foolish, how ignorant how blind sin has made us as humans and jesus says this this hatred is not haphazard it's a promise it's to be expected jesus says look at verse 25 but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled the promise of the old testament must be fulfilled they hated me without a cause. And I believe he's referring to Psalm 69, 4. That says, more in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Hear what Christ is saying here. He's saying, brace yourselves. In the world, you will have trouble. Expect to draw hatred. They will lie about you. They will misrepresent you. They will mock you. They will bully you. They will kill you. They did me, and you're my servants going out in my name. You can expect the same, because a servant is not above the master. Now, what does Jesus say they can expect? And and by extension, what might we expect as his followers? Well, he says, he explains how this is manifested in chapter 16. So move down towards the end of the the passage there in your bulletin. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Okay, now, you may remember back in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and the authorities don't like it, and so they begin this investigation uh, into the matter, and they they go and they talk to his parents, and his parents, they answer the non controversial questions, but they don't deal with the the real heart of the matter, because, John says, they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue because of their testimony. What what does that mean? You know, synagogue was the the equivalent of a local church. It was a place of worship for the Jewish community. But to be cut off from the synagogue was to be cut off from Jewish life. It was to be cut off from the community of faith. It was a very serious thing. It was to be banished from shared common life. It was to be canceled, if you will. There was a, 15 years ago, I heard a Holocaust survivor describing uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And he said that he was a young, young boy, elementary to middle school ages, when all this was happening. And he said, you know, it started, the, the, the ridicule at school, like on the school playground picked up. Uh, we would get made fun of. And then maybe a year or so later, it started coming actually from the teacher's. And then there was a segregation that took place, sort of a banishing of the Jews from that. And then, they, and then the people, the Germans stopped shopping at their stores. He said it was just like little by little. Every year, there's just a little bit more. And then the trains came. And they didn't know where they were going, but they loaded them up on the train. Off they went. And he said it, it was incredible, the, the ever so gradual nature of Nazi Germany toward us. And that's what Jesus is describing. You, you can expect to be kicked out of synagogues, but it gets worse. Look at verse 2. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, not just banish, not just cancel, but they're saying kills you, will think he's offering service to God. They will think that their persecution of you, disciples, is righteous and good, that they're doing this in service to the Almighty. Or as it relates to the pagan Gentile culture, they're doing this in service to the gods. A seminary professor of mine, uh, David Wells, liked to say that the world makes sin look like righteousness. It makes righteousness look like sin. That's, That's what the world does. It makes sin appear to be righteous, and righteousness look wicked. And this is what Jesus is saying the world will do. They're going, to be, they're going to be killing you and believing that they are serving God Almighty or believing that they are serving their pagan gods. Expect it, Jesus says. Jeffrey Wigand, the, 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 the whistleblower, the, 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 the tobacco company hired a PR firm to kind of do a smear campaign on him. They, they made all sorts of charges that he that made him look awful and wicked and unreliable the early church there was all sorts of rumors circulating about the craziness of these christians they were cannibals they were cannibals because they came to this table and they ate the body and blood of their lord cannibalism they were involved in these incestual relationships incestuous relationships because they all were brothers and sisters and they had one father this is what the this is what the early church was called in the eyes of the of the pagan world. Well, what's the what's the problem? Why is the world so uh, opposed to Christ? He says in verse three, they will do these things because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. the The problem is their alienation from the Father. The world is entrapped and enveloped in darkness. And so it hates the light. We've used this picture before, but it's like the world is like rats or roaches that love to dwell in the darkness. And you shine a light into the dark alley and they they scurry off into the darkness. They retreat further and further into deeper darkness because they don't like the light. And that's what Jesus has said. The, The world doesn't like the light. And in verse 4, look, look at how uh, Jesus concludes our, our section today. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I'm telling you this so that you can be prepared. Brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. Brace yourselves. Now, I, I want to say, we... we um, in the West and in, in, in America, have enjoyed quite a bit of cultural wind at our backs as it relates to the faith. There's not, a, there's not been, historically, there's not been tons of resistance to the Christian outlook. You could, you could be a Christian. It actually might provide you with a little social capital. That may be changing. I don't know. God, God knows the future. But Jesus is saying and I think the world history would tell us, the Holocaust survivor would tell us, things can change quickly. Be prepared. The world, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated me, too. So brace yourselves. Now that's that's the first point. Brace yourselves. We need some encouragement. This is kind of this is this is a heavy one. I, f- I felt the heaviness of this sermon all week. So second point: take heart. Take heart. Look at verse 26 of chapter 15. Jesus says, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the paraclete is the Greek, literally the one who's called alongside to help you out, your friend, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus is saying, take heart. You have a helper who comes from the Father. And what will this helper do? What will the Holy Spirit do for us? He says, bear witness about Christ. Bear witness about Christ. That's what the Spirit does. If you want to be a part of a Spirit-led church... You can be a part of a church that proclaims Christ with clarity and conviction. That's what the Spirit, that's what the Spirit leads us toward. Is Christ and exalting Christ and meditating upon Christ and loving Christ and serving Christ. Spirit-centered churches are Christ-centered churches. They proclaim Christ. Now, lots of Christians in America are, are nervous because we feel the ground shifting beneath our feet. And I think the the fear can drive us in one of two directions. It's, 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 um, well, you're probably familiar with this. We either fight or flight. Fight or flee. That's kind of the two. Fear gets in your heart. You've got, uh, humans typically respond in two ways. They want to fight or they want to fly. They want to flee. They want to get away from it. Now, for those who, Christians who are sort of, Feeling the fear, there's a temptation towards flight, to hit the eject button, and every, at every point where the scriptures, the word of God conflicts with the ways of the world, we're gonna, we're gonna just pull the tension out of that. We're gonna kinda accommodate the, the authority of scripture to fit the, the the way of the world. And so that's how we're gonna deal with it. We're gonna, we're gonna kinda flee all the tension points. Others in our culture are tempted to, to fight out of fear. The desire is, with force if necessary, right the ship. Get things back on track. You remember uh, January 6th, the, the storming of the Capitol. There were Jesus posters in the crowd. Both part, those that are fleeing and those that are fighting have both lost sight of Christ. In both cases, the Holy Spirit is not driving them because they're not leaning and abiding in Christ. Instead, they're leaning and abiding in the morals or the mores of the day, in the case of those that are fleeing and removing all the tension points in the Scripture with the culture. Or they're leaning and abiding in some nostalgic America of yesteryear that they're trying to reclaim. But they're not leading and and, and abiding in Christ. And so they're driven by fear. For those that are fleeing, they've forgotten that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And for those that want to fight, they've forgotten that Christ's kingdom comes by weakness. That it's the cross that conquers all. That it is the cross that is the glory of Christ. And I, I want you to hear me. I'm not... I'm not saying the response here is to just sort of lean back and do nothing. We, we, have, we have the blessing and benefit in, in a democracy to be politically engaged and to the extent that we can do that and work toward just ends within the political sphere and within the cultural sphere. We do that, and there is, there is a fight involved, and, and of course... Paul says our real fight is not against flesh and blood, but against unseen spiritual forces. But there's fight involved. But I think the question is, is the fight driven by a nervous panic and fear? Or is it driven by Christ and confidence in his kingdom? If your energies are driven by fear and panic, you've lost sight of Christ. Who is love and loves us with a perfect love that the scriptures say cast out fear. It casts out fear. So in many ways, I think it's, it's helpful to think of Christ's ministry as one of blowing the whistle on the world. He's calling out the world and its bogus promises and unapologetically claiming himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, as we see in the scriptures and through the testimony of Christian history, the world hates it and does all it can to stop him, to kill him. And, and as Newbigin points out, our response to truth incarnate was to destroy it. Like, like the threats that Wigan faced to his children because of what he was doing, Jesus says, look, you can expect my children, my disciples, to experience the same kind of vitriol and hatred. But here's the thing. When you're building something, it gets harder before it gets easier. Did you know that? Think, think about anything that you, build. if you're remodeling your house, what happened? You got a vision of where it's going, but what happens before you get to that vision? It's a total mess. Think about the highway project down here. It's, before it gets better, it was way worse than it was before. And you're probably thinking, is it worth it? Is this worth it? And five years later, we're like, yeah, okay, that's much better. Traffic flowing much better now. Christ is building his kingdom in earth. It's broken in. It's happening right now. And the cornerstone of that kingdom is about to fall into place. The cornerstone is our crucified Lord Jesus. And his death will atone for sin. It will destroy the foundation of this world, sin, and Satan, and the flesh. And it will lay, the work of Christ will lay the foundation for a new kingdom built upon the grace and mercy of our Father, of God. The stone that was rejected is the cornerstone for this new kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. Think about that. We are correct to express concern over kind of this post-Christian moment that we find ourselves in. But, and, and, and two, we're, it's appropriate for us to to to. To fight for truth. Fight for justice. And by the way, the, the political parties that are in place don't always have all that sorted out properly. So, not provide, And there's not like a simple solution to that. But we must fight for those things. For justice and for truth. But should the wheels come off of the American project? We don't fear. We don't panic. God's got this. Jesus has this. The way of Christ is the way of weakness, rejection, death. Jesus says, those who lose their lives will find it. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, the the, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he says. And think about it. Jesus was both of those things. He was persecuted. He was meek as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he conquered the world through it. That's how Christ, that's how God brings forth his power in weakness. So we can expect the same for ourselves. These are, these are his promises to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's a, it's a difficult word that we have this morning. I found difficulty um, communicating it, but I pray that you would help us to be faithful to it and that you would help us to live in light of it that your spirit would give us the things that you promised that that the spirit will give us i uh, here especially in these in these chapters that we've been in and we pray these things in Christ's name amen <clears throat>